This morning, I'm going to be um, talking about the Torah. Um, I'm doing apostolic scriptures, and um, when you study apostolic scriptures all the time, you, you focus on that, and you kind of get away from the Torah, so it's good every now and then to have a forum like this to be able to get back to the Torah, because the Torah is the foundation of God's Word, and it's always good to, um, to get back to the roots. So let's begin, as we should, with a prayer. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Halam Asher Kitshenu B'Mitzvotab Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments. It is your commandments, Father, that we study the Torah and that we make the Torah a part of our lives so that we don't just study but we live your, your word, Father, so that those around us can see you in us in all that we do. As true followers of you, we do our best we can to follow your word in everything that we do. Father, be with us this morning as we study your word, as we draw nearer to you. Be with us during this service today. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. So, um, Shemot is the Hebrew word for names. Um, this, this book is, we're beginning a new book of Torah this week, in this week's Torah cycle. And the English translation of this Shemot is Exodus. And I've got a, a, a Jewish study Bible that comes and gives, kind of gives an explanation of this word Exodus. The English name Exodus derives from the Greek title Exodos, which is short for Exodos Agyihoi, which is, basically means departure from Egypt. So we have the book names and the, um, um, the overall story of the book is the departure from Egypt. So it begins with, these are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each coming with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The total number of the persons that were with Jacob's, that were of Jacob's issue, came to 70, Joseph being already in Egypt. So last week we finished the book of Genesis. This week we, we start the book of, of Exodus. The book of Exodus tells the story of the children of Israel enslaved in Egypt and their miraculous redemption by the, through the hand of Moses and the story of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, the construction of the golden calf, and the construction of the tabernacle. As we study this week's first reading from the book of Exodus, we find the children of Israel in slavery. It seems at first that the God of their forefathers has forgotten them. But God has not forgotten his people, nor his promises. He remembers his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and brings a redeemer to their children's children for the sake of his name with love. The book of Exodus begins with the conjunction and in order to relate it to the concluding chapters of Genesis. It's a continuation of the story. There, Jacob's family begins the process of exile by descending to Egypt 
And here the narrative of the exile is developed until it ends with the blaze of miracles that culminate in the exodus and the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Thus, the opening phrase of our verse in Genesis 48.6 are identical. The opening phrase in Exodus and the, in the, in the phrase from Genesis 46.6. The earlier version introduces the exile. This one picks up the thread of the narrative and continues. Rabbi Yaakov Kaminsky explained that Jacob was like the sun and his sons were like the stars. When the sun is out, the stars are not visible. But when the sun sets, the stars take over the sky. So too, after Jacob's death, the tribal ancestors achieved greater importance. For the presence of their light in the increasing darkness of the Egyptian exile kept hope alive for their offspring. They were only in geographic exile and not spiritual exile. The 12 tribes were intimately attached to Jacob, the father, the patriarch, and this is the secret to Israel's strength and survival. Although each son had his own family, he remained united with Jacob, like a branch growing from a stem. That's from Rabbi Hirsch. Very similar to our United States, right? You have 50 states that are all individual, but they come together as one unit and it creates power in their numbers. The Jewish people are the sons of Israel. The first several chapters of Exodus tell the dramatic story of how God rescues the sons of Israel from Egypt. God commanded them to retell the story of their children in every generation as a part of the festival of Passover or Pesach. The story of Exodus is fundamental to Jewish identity. The prophets of Israel frequently invoked the image of the exodus from Egypt to speak about the future. They pointed toward the redemption when God would again rescue his people from the nations and bring them into a land of promise. This story is also important for all believers in Yeshua. Yeshua came like a second Moses, a redeemer, who was sent to liberate his people from bondage. He died and rose during the days of Passover the annual remembrance of the liberation from Egypt. For believers, the Passover and the Exodus are forever connected with our Messiah. For the sinner caught in self-destructive habits from which he cannot seem to escape on his own power, the Exodus story offers hope that, God who that the God who rescued Israel from Egypt can also rescue him. Jacob's and his sons relocated their family to Egypt to escape famine. When Jacob first went down to Egypt, he went only to sojourn there until the famine had passed. Happy, well-fed, and prosperous, the children of Israel could have easily forgotten about their great spiritual heritage. Content with the comforts and the luxuries of Egypt, they might have abandoned their aspirations of inheriting Canaan. The children of Israel found their situation in Egypt suddenly reversed when the Egyptian government forced the Hebrews into servitude. Success and prosperity quickly turned into bondage. While we're in service of materialism, our spiritual health inevitably suffers. Yeshua warned us, saying, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Matthew 6:24. The Hebrew people assimilated into the larger culture. Assimilation poses a great danger to the people of God, a greater danger to the people of God than persecution. When we are persecuted, we closely band together and firm up our convictions. We remember that we are not part of the greater culture. We are received into the culture, though we lose those distinctions and we begin to lose our identity. We fall sway into the powerful swell of a social allure. You know, when they were there all that time, it, it is thought that they assimilated, and I'm sure they did assimilate in a lot of ways, but they were still separate. Because even though, were there, oh, though they were there for all those years, they still maintained their identity. They were always known as the Hebrews. Instead of settling down and trying to fit into Egyptian culture, the ch children of Israel ought to have looked toward the return to Canaan. By remaining in Egypt, they made themselves, and especially their children, vulnerable to e Egyptian culture. They were already entering spiritual enslavement long before their physical enslavement began. According to a simple reading of the text, Jacob's family grew from 70 people to a nation with more than 600,000 men above the age of 20, which is to say a total number of around 3 million people, men, women, and children. In just a few generations spanning 210 years, this happened. The Lord used the exponential growth to fulfill the promises that he'd made to the forefathers to make them into a great nation, uncountable, as the stars and innumerable as the sands of the seashore. The Madras of the Passover Haggadah makes a correlation between Jacob's sojourn in Amram and the Egyptian exile, comparing Laban to Pharaoh. The growth of the nation in Egypt corresponds to the birth of Jacob's family in Amram. Jacob went down to Amram alone he sojourned there and served Laban with hard labor. His family grew numerous. Laban and his sons began to resent and misuse Jacob and his family. Jacob left Amram with a large family and many possessions that had once belonged to Laban. The deeds of the fathers portents that of the sons. Jacob's sons entered Egypt, 70 in all. They sojourned there and served the Egyptians with hard labor. The family grew numerous and left Egypt with the possessions of the Egyptians. This pattern recurred in the Babylonian exile as Jewish people established themselves in many nations, creating the great Jewish diaspora. The pattern recurred in the current exile. Even though Jewish population figures have not yet returned to what they were before World War II and the Holocaust, the greater Commonwealth of Israel has expanded to include billions of people from all nations who have embraced the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Israel goes up out of exile in the final redemption, they will take with them the spoils of the nations. Exodus 1, 8 through 14. Let's read that. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, 
they may join our enemies in fighting against us and rise from the ground. So they set their taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built garrison cities for Pharaoh, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians ruthlessly imposed upon the Israelites the various labors they made them perform. Ruthlessly, they made life bitter for them with harsh labor at mortar and bricks and with all sorts of tasks in the fields. The Egyptians were frightened by the growth of Israel. The Hebrews were becoming too numerous, too strong. They might overwhelm the natives, but they were used, too useful to be permitted to leave the country. It was the first instance in history of what has to become a familiar pattern of anti-Semitism. The Hebrews, and later the Jews, are too dangerous to keep, and yet they are too important to lose. So Pharaoh proposes a solution. He will harness the Hebrews by enslaving them so that the state will benefit from their talents without fear that they will desert the country or organize themselves into an overwhelming force that will overtake Egyptian society. The Jews are too dangerous to keep, yet too important to lose. That is true in so many societies. If you read Jewish history, and you read the history of the uh, European Jews, and during the... Um, the, the oppression that they would, would, would have, um, have, have experienced. It was the truth. They became so educated and so, um, um, so interwoven in the leadership of society that they were too important, that they, 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 they performed too important a service. To, and, and when they weren't there, the, the society suffered. The Jews were thought of as outsiders, even though they had been in Egypt for well over 100 years, which tells me that they definitely had set up their own um, culture and they protected their culture. The satanic spirit of hatred that herded the Jews into labor camps of Nazi occupied Europe is the same spirit of hatred that forced the Israelites into slave labor in the days of Moses. The evil malice that stoked the furnaces of the death camps is the same spiritual malice that ordered the Israelite babies thrown into the Nile. Why do people hate the Jews? And where does anti-Semitism come from? The Jewish people represent God. They are the people of God. They represent God's work on earth. Through them, the Messiah came. And for them, the Messiah will unseat the power of evil. Because of this, Satan bears an undying hatred for the Jewish people. For Satan, the war against the Jews is a war against God. In Exodus 1, 15 through 22, having failed to stem the growth of Jewish growth through slavery and breakbacking work, back-breaking work, Pharaoh proposed a more blatant, if not secret, form of destruction. According to the sages, the midwives Sifra and Puah were Jacobed and Miriam, the mother and sister of Moses, this is in Sota 11b. Pharaoh did not reckon with their fear of God. Not only did they refrain from carrying out his order, they did everything in their power to assist the mothers in giving birth to healthy children 
and caring for the children after they were born. This was a, um, um, a Midrashic interpretation that these two people were Jochebed and Mer Miriam. It was not stated in the, in the Torah that they were. It's just a, um, it's an interpretation that, that takes away from the literal meaning, which is why the Torah, why would the Torah obscure this, this identity for the family of Moses? Tradition credits women of this generation. The Israelite women would not be defeated. They were the daughters of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. So this is why they would want to compare or, or want to say that they were the two, even though the text didn't pl plainly say that. Their mothers, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, had defied barrenness and hardship. They had lived to build the people of God. Their daughters were determined to continue this undertaking and would not be deterred. Whereas the men despaired, the women kept the faith, the flame of faith alive. Eighty years later, under the shadow of Mount Sinai, Moses called for the contributions to build the tabernacle of God. The women brought their copper mirrors. Legend says that the Lord accepted the mirrors because the women of the Egyptian exile had used them to beautify themselves in order to continue to allure their husbands despite the Egyptian mistreatment. When Moses first saw the women bringing the copper mirrors, he thought, how can I accept these contributions for God's holy tabernacle? These are the instruments of evil inclination, i.e. vanity. The Holy One, Echad, Hashem, blessed be he, said, accept them because these are the dearest to me of all. For by means of them, the women established many legions of offspring in Egypt. Moses used the mirrors to make the laver and the tabernacle from which the priesthood would wash their hands and feet every day, an object of sanctity and purity. Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill the sons, but the midwives feared God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to be afraid of God? The biblical idiom for fear of God implies faith that he exists and that he punishes sin and rewards merit. It does not mean to live in terror of God as one might live in fear of an abusive husband or a father or a ruthless dictator. It means to believe in him and to believe that he sees all of our deeds. A man who fears God believes that God punishes his sins and rewards him for obedience. How do we discern what is being obedient? We only find that in the Torah. Pharaoh commanded his entire people saying, every son that will be born into the river shall you throw him. Every daughter shall you keep alive. Notice he says every, um, every son that is born. Doesn't, he doesn't specify Hebrew or Egyptian. Pharaoh issued, issued a new order, ordering his people to cast every newborn son into the Nile River. This is puzzling. The sages point out that the decree did not apply only to the children of the Hebrews. He imposed the same decree upon his own people. Why did Pharaoh issue a decree calling for the massacre of all newborn sons? 
The order would not only curb Hebrew population, it would diminish the Egyptian population. Tradition explains that Pharaoh's astrologers told him that the Israelite savior was about to be born, but he did not tell him if it would be a Hebrew or an Egyptian. So Pharaoh ordered that all newborn boys be killed. Indeed, Moses was born during this time of this cruel order was in effect. Now this, is, this again is a, uh, is a midrash, so I want to clear that up, or just make sure and, and clarify that. As for the story of the astrologers, old Jewish, well let me back up a little bit. Matthew's Jewish readers knew the legend about the astrologers and the birth of Moses. As Matthew told the story of Yeshua and King Herod and the astrologers from the east, his Jewish readers quickly connected those events with stories associated with the birth of Moses. They saw that the birth of Yeshua conformed to the pattern set by the birth of Moses. As in the story of the old astrologers, old Jewish legends about the birth of Moses prefigure and parallels the story of the master's birth and infancy. The sages refer to Moses and Messiah respectively as the first redeemer and the ultimate redeemer. The Messiah is the prophet like Moses, and a prophet like Moses, the life and work of Messiah reflect the pattern set by Moses. The sages said, the future redeemer will be like the former redeemer. In Exodus 2, 1 through 10, we learn of the birth of Moses. The story tells the story of Moses' birth straightforward and simple. The Midrash comes out of the verse, the Midrash that comes out of this verses 1 through 2 is just tremendous. For example, this brief, very concise passage is a textbook in the hidden workings of God's providences and how many, how man's most intelligent analysis falls short of comprehending and surely thwarting. The divine will. Amram and Jochebed, the parents of Miriam and Aaron, separated rather than bring the world, rather than bring into the world boys who would be murdered. Six-year-old Miriam argued that they were worse than Pharaoh, for the decree prevented the birth of even girls. She said that Pharaoh is a mortal king who decreases, may or may not, whose decrees may or may not endure. But the deeds of the righteous Amram, who was the spiritual leader of Israel, which was her father, would surely survive. That was from Sotah 12a. Her parents remarried and bore the child who would save their nation. This is a midrash. This is something that they, they, uh, they put together out of the, the text because Miriam and Aaron were already born and then they say they came together to, um, uh, for Moses like they were, had been separated. Ultimately, Moses' life was saved by Pharaoh's daughter and he was raised under the doting care of the very king who had ordered him killed to prevent the salvation of Israel. Many are the designs in a man's heart, but the counsel of Hashem, only it will prevail. Proverbs 19.21 In Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15, Moses identifies with his people. I do have a couple of uh, things here before I go any further. This is the, um, the seven readings in the Parsha, the way the Parsha would have been uh, 
read in the synagogue. The, um, um, the order of the seven different readers and the last one being the Maftir reader. Here's some good pictures of uh, Moses in the, um, um, you know, in the basket in the reeds that, uh, that I was able to, to find on the internet. So, Moses identifies with his people. Moses had been raised in the splendor and anti-Semitism of the palace, but he remained the son of Amram and Jochebed. Though his mother had him for only the earliest years of his life, she succeeded so well in imbuing him with the love and loyalty to his people that despite his royal upbringing, he did not become an Egyptian prince, but remained a Hebrew. As he matured, he displayed the compassion for the downtrodden that stamped him as the future redeemer of Israel. The book of Hebrews says that when Moses had grown up and turned 40, he rejected his adopted family and joined himself to his people, even in their slavery. By faith, Moses, when he had grown, refused to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Messiah greater riches than treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Hebrews 11, 24 through 27. This text raises questions. Where in the Torah does it say that Moses refueled to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, or refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter? The Torah does not say so. The detail about Moses' refusal of designation as the son of Pharaoh's daughter comes from the apostolic midrash, a tradition telling of the story from the apostles. Where did the apostolic writer, or what did the apostolic writer mean when he wrote that Moses considered the reproach of Messiah greater than the riches of the treasures of Egypt? Does this imply that Moses has some type of foreknowledge about the coming redeemer? who would die for the sins of the world? Some teachers make that claim, but the explanation does not make sense of the passage. The passage in Hebrews 11 does not indicate that Moses had foreknowledge of Messiah, rather that he took on the reproach of Messiah. He was treated like Messiah was treated. This alludes to a broader apostolic teaching that was based on the Midrash about Moses' life. The writer of the book of Hebrews and the author of the Midrash Rabbah appeared to share a common source or oral tradition about Moses. The Torah itself does not indicate that Moses went to work with the people. We are only told that he saw their hard labor and smote the Egyptian. Furthermore, the tradition in the Midrash has it that Moses even longed to die on behalf of his people. Moses might have chosen to retain his position in power Instead, he humbled himself, stripping himself of his royal station, taking on the form of a slave, being found in appearance as a Hebrew. He humbled himself even to the point of death. He took the reproach of Messiah as a first Messiah. As much as he chose to suffer for his people like Messiah, he did so because he had a conviction of the unseen God and confidence of things hoped for, i.e., the promises of God. He took on the burden, affliction, and suffering of his people willing to even die on their behalf because he prioritized the things of the coming world 
over the immediate luxuries and comforts available to him in Egypt. You know, uh, Moses was a foreshadowed Messiah, just like Joseph was a foreshadowed Messiah. And if, as you study scripture, um, I'm sure that when, when Yeshua had his disciples or his apostles for 40 days after his resurrection, that he taught them and showed them himself and the lives of some of the patriarchs and how they were um, foreshadowing him and how he was in the Torah. Moses' life can be divided into three 40-year segments. At the age of 40, Moses thought he was the redeemer of Israel. He had a dream of saving his people. His dream was frustrated, and in exasperation he gave up. He fled into the wilderness, where he became a shepherd, herding sheep for a pagan. He married a Midianite woman. His dream of redeeming Israel died in the wilderness. Only after that dream was dead, Moses was no longer, and Moses was no longer to, uh, trying to achieve it, did God call him. Only then, long after all the pride and bravado were gone, was Moses ready to be a tool in the hand of God. He spent the last 40 years of his life fulfilling the dream that had been birthed in him 40 years before. His first 40 years, he was in the palace with Pharaoh. He was being trained under the, uh, at, the, at that particular time of the world, getting the best education. He was learning leadership skills. He was preparing himself to be um, part of Pharaoh's court and to be a leader in, in, um, in, in Egypt. And then he had the situation where he had to flee. And for 40 years, he was in the desert, humbling himself. Not, not in the desert, but in the wilderness as a shepherd. So he went from being a leader of people and men to being lo alone, working with animals in a uh, wilderness for 40 years. I mean, all this prepared him for his ultimate um, purpose in life, which to, was to create and lead a nation of people, which was God's people. God uses defeat and disappointment in our lives to prepare us for real service. So when it seems that your dreams come crashing down, don't despair. It could be that God wants to prepare you to do things his way instead of your way. Stephen's version of the story in Acts reflects the same apostolic tradition transmitted to us in the book of Hebrews. It is not that Moses had a foreknowledge of the reproach of Messiah, but he, rather he took on the reproach of Messiah when he identified with the Hebrews and attempted to redeem them. According to Stephen, Moses intentionally left Pharaoh's household to try and bring salvation to his people. The holy martyr Stephen explained to the Sanhedrin how Moses took on the reproach of Messiah. Stephen pointed out that Moses, who, like Messiah, was sent as ruler and judge over Israel, was rejected by his kinsmen. Like Moses before him, Yeshua called on the people of his generation to set aside baseless hatred, gossip, slander, hostility, fighting, and murder. He called on them to repent so that he might usher in the final redemption. Um, some pictures of uh, Moses in the, um, as a shepherd. Moses intervened and even watered the flocks for the girls, just as Rebecca watered Eliezer's camels and Jacob watered Rachel's flocks. Moses adopted the practice of his fathers. 
There they met their brides at a well, all three, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Also, Rebekah met Eleazar at the well. The father of seven girls was a Midianite priest. He had no sons. In gratitude for the kindness Moses showed his daughters, he extended hospitality to him and offered him to stay and work for him as a shepherd. The priest of Midian had two names. Exodus 2.18 calls him Ruel, but in Exodus 3.1 he's called Jethro or Yitro. Ruel means friend of God. Moses agreed to stay. He married Ruel's daughter Zipporah. Like Jacob, who worked for Laban, Moses moved into the house, household of Ruel and became the father of two sons. He named his firstborn Gershom, which is sojourner, saying, I have been a sojourner, a gur, in a foreign land, in Exodus 2.22. It seems that for the time being, Moses set aside his dreams of redeeming Israel. Moses did not forget the Lord. He named the second, his second son Eleazar, which is God is my helper, because he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh in Exodus 18.4. At the same time, he seems to have neglected to circumcise them. In Exodus 3, 1-10, he's a shepherd and a liberator. Moses became the shepherd of his father-in-law's sheep, and this experience became a proving ground for, for him as a future shepherd to the children of Israel. The Midrash relates that he showed compassion for the thirsty sheep, whereupon God said that a person who pities even a helpless beast will surely show compassion for an entire nation. King David, too, showed his mettle as a shepherd. The occupation of such other righteous people as Abel, bear with me, something here the shepherd was was also an occupation of such righteous people as Abel the patriarchs and Jacob's son Integ integrity too is a prerequisite for the leader of Israel and Moses displayed this with his honesty by taking the sheep to the wilderness for he would not permit them to graze on land that might be privately owned the young David did the same if there was it was there in the wilderness that God appeared to Moses for the first time to appoint him the leader of Israel to the position that in his humility Moses strenuously resisted until God commanded him to comply. Moses spent 40 years in the house of Jethro. The Torah states that Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. He did not learn humility in Pharaoh's court. He learned humility for 40 years from shepherding the flocks of Jethro and not from the prestige of Pharaoh's table. The Torah hints toward a correlation between Moses, the shepherd of the flocks, and Moses, the shepherd of people. He spent 40 years shepherding Jethro's flocks in the wilderness in the same way he will spend 40 years shepherding the people of Israel in the wilderness. In Exodus 3, 11 through 17, Moses doubts and God's reassurances. Some other burning bush. For a total of seven days, God urged Moses to go to Egypt, and Moses refused. Moses' arguments took three main forms. 
He considered himself unworthy and lacking in the talent needed for, the, for this mission. He felt that he would fail because either Pharaoh or the Hebrews or both would not believe him. The Hebrews had no, they had not learned, they not, had, had not earned God's miraculous intervention. You know, he also said that he couldn't speak, that he had trouble speaking. At the end of the lengthy exchange, a new element entered Moses' considerations. He felt that it was not proper for him to become the leader of Israel in place of his older brother Aaron, who had been carrying the burden of leadership in Egypt. It seemed strange, even inconceivable, that Moses should refuse to obey God's explicit command. Even if he was sure in his own mind that he could not succeed, how could he not believe in God? The Midrash indicates that the key to Moses' hesitation may be found in verse 10, where God commanded him to go to Pharaoh and take Israel out of Egypt, thus implying that the task was Moses to perform. Consequently, he assured that the liberation was to be performed not through God's miraculous intervention, but through his own skills of persuasion and inspiration. This is the Midrash Shemos Rabbah. In keeping with the general rule that one should not rely on miracles, Furthermore, the Midrash implies that Moses realized that he had not understood the possible ramifications of his mission. Moses had to evaluate himself and determine if he was equal to this task. And this most humble of all human beings was convinced that he was not. As Rambam in 4.2 notes, God would tell him during the lengthy dialogue that Pharaoh would not heed his message nor did he guarantee at first that the Hebrews would believe him. If so, logic dictated that Pharaoh's disdain would cause the Hebrews to dismiss Moses as a divine emissary, as indeed it did occur. This is why he, he was justified in questioning the divine choice as being so obviously inadequate of a man carrying out a mission that was beyond his capacity. For if we indeed fail, God's name would be desecrated. In a similar manner, Abraham virtually demanded that God save the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah from the punishment that they were so richly deserving. As a part of his plea, Abraham argued that it would be unjust for God to carry out the upheaval decreed against Sodom. The Midrash explains that a manifestation of God's judgment was Abraham's comprehension would interfere with his service with God. And therefore, he felt that it was, he had a right to protest. So too, Moses appealed that he not be given a mission that was too much for him. It should be noted that Moses never said, as a fugitive who had been forced to flee for his life, he was, not, he was scared of a risk of returning. Moses did not use personal safety as a reason to refuse God's command. In Exodus 3... 13 through 17, we get the names of God. Moses raised a second objection, asking God, what is your name? He conjectured that the children of Israel might demand something more than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This request can be compared to Jacob's request when he wrestled with the angel and said, please tell me your name. Moses wanted more than just a personal name of God. He sought further revelation about the essence of God. The Lord obliged and told him, 
a yay, I sure a yay. I will be as I will be. Or as it gets translated so many times, I am who I am. This phrase indicated God's immutable nature, that he is timeless, eternal, and unchanging. This was not really the proper name of God, as it was a description of himself. What is his name? Jewish people know the various names of God, so the question cannot be understood literally. God has, has many names, each which represents the way in which he reveals himself through his behavior toward the world. When he is merciful, he is called Hashem. Hashem means the name. Hashem represents compassion and the eternity of God, for it is composed of the letters that spell he was, he is, and he will be, meaning that God's being is timeless. When he exercises strict judgment, he is called Elohim. When he exercises his mastery over nature and performs hidden miracles as he did for the patriarchs, he is called Shaddai. Thus Moses was saying that once the Israelites slash Hebrews accepted him as God's emissary, they would not, want to know which of God's attributes he would manifest in the course of redeeming them from Egypt. yod heh vav -Hey. It's more than a descriptive name. It is a proper noun, for it is the actual name of God, and it is known as Shem HaMephorosh, or the ineffable name. In respect for its great sanctity, it is not pronounced as it is written. Instead, it is pronounced Adonai during prayer, or when reading from the Torah. In ordinary speech, the word Hashem, the name, is substituted for it. Many readers of the English translation of the Bible are completely unaware that God's personal name appears all through the Bible because our English translations have, for the most part, honored the Jewish convention of substituting this circumlocution, I'm bad about that, for Hashem. It's a substitute for Hashem. Typically, when the name Lord appears in capital letters, it means that the Hebrew text is using the yod heh vav -Heh, God's personal name. Long before the days of the Master, the Jewish people sanctified God's name by removing it from common usage. They interpreted the, interpreted the, they interpreted the commandment not to take the name of the Lord in vain to mean that God's name is so holy, so set apart and sacred, that it should never be pronounced casually. By the days of the master, only the priesthood pronounced God's name. They did so during the priestly benediction, the Aaronic benediction, and they obscured the pronunciation in order to protect the name from profane use. Only the high priest pronounced it clearly and auditably, and he did so only on Yom Kippur. As he did, all the worshipers in the temple prostrated themselves and said, Blessed is the name of the glory of his kingdom. Judaism and Messianic Judaism still honor the tradition of sanctifying the name of God by leaving it unpronounced. We substitute Hashem, Adonai, Shaddai, and Lord where appropriate. Iyeh, Asher, Iyeh means I do not change. 
the Israelites needed to hear that message. They needed to know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had not changed. His promises still held good. I will be there with them now just as I was with their fathers in the past and just as I will be with their children in the future. In a world of constant change, where hearts are broken, health is lost, trust is damaged, vows are shattered, lives are lost, friends are forgotten, and everything is always changing, God stands above it all, unchanging. He declares, I do not change, I will be that which I will be, I am trustworthy. Hashem is worthy of our trust. God gave, gives Moses a summary of how the events will transpire with Pharaoh. The Lord instructed Moses to go to the elders of Israel and deliver the message that God was ready to bring them out of Egypt and into Canaan. Then he was to go to Pharaoh and request permission to take the people into the wilderness to worship for three days. The Lord knew that Pharaoh would certainly refuse. He said, I will out of my hand, I will out of my hand strike Egypt with all the miracles which I shall do in the midst of it and after that he will let you go in Exodus 3.20. As the children of Israel left Egypt they were to loot the Egyptians. The rabbis justified this looting as compensation for their 116 years of unpaid labor. In Exodus 4.1-17 Moses doubts the people's faith. Even after God's assurances Moses insisted that the people will not believe him. God then showed him three miracles that he was displayed to prove to the people of his control of the Exodus and to gain the confidence of the leaders and the people of Israel. Moses raised a further objection, claiming that he was not eloquent enough to stand up before Pharaoh or to lead Israel. The Lord assured him, I, even I, will be your mouth and teach you, that you are what you are to say. He promised to give Moses the gift of prophecy. Moses objected one last time, saying, Please, Lord, now send though whomever you will send. No longer did God seek Moses. Um, he, he didn't, he, he, no longer was he listening to any of this. He commanded him at this point. But to ease his fears, he did appoint Aaron to act as his spokesman for Pharaoh, to Pharaoh. The reluctance of Moses sets the pattern for other prophets, prophets in their commissioning stories. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, Jonah, and, all, and, and others all objected to the commissioning that God assigned them. In using his objections to God's request, Moses was employing negotiation with God. It's interesting that for each objection, Moses received something from God to help him overcome the objection. Moses followed the tradition of Abraham who negotiated for Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses put his negotiation skills to use again and again after he became Israel's advocate in the wilderness. His ability to negotiate with God saved the nation from destruction more than once. Moses indeed had a very special relationship with God. Exodus 4.20 So Moses took his wives and sons and mounted them on the, on the donkey and returned to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. This is not from a Christian or a messianic uh, midrash, this is from a Jewish midrash. Just a quick note about this verse, Rashi and Rabbi Eliezer midrash on this verse is, the definite article the indicates that this was a special donkey 
It was the donkey that Abraham rode and that King Messiah will ride, humbled and mounted on a donkey in Zechariah 9.9. Here we see the significance of Yeshua riding into Jerusalem before the pilgrimage festival of Pesach on the donkey. Exodus 4.22 says, You shall say to Pharaoh, So said Hashem, my firstborn son is Israel. God refers to Israel as his firstborn son. He demands Pharaoh release Israel or suffer the consequences. Years later, the prophet Hosea revisited the image of Israel as God's son with the words, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Hosea 11.1 The Hosea passage is well known because it is quoted in the Gospel of Matthew. As Matthew tells the story of Messiah's sojourn in Egypt, he interprets it as a fulfillment of the Hosea prophecy. Yeshua remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. This will fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. Most recognize that Matthew was, was a midrashic manner of interpretation similar to the sages. Matthew wants us to see the correlation between Israel and Messiah, who is the quintessential Israelite. In apostolic theology, the, the Messiah of Israel and the nation of Israel are interchangeable because the Messiah is the king of Israel. If Israel is God's son and Yeshua is God's son, Yeshua must in some sense be Israel. Messianic rabbi Mark Kinzer explains that Yeshua uniquely represents the nation of Israel and that he is the individual embodiment of the entire people of Israel. So important. Exodus 4, 24 through 26. Zipporah circumcises her son. It was on the way in the lodge, lodging that Hashem encountered him and sought to kill him. So Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and touched it to his feet and said, You caused my bridegroom's bloodshed. So he released him. Then she said, a bridegroom's bloodshed was because of circumcision. This is a strange verse. This is very hard to understand. Moses set out for Egypt with his family, including his newborn son who had, been circum who had not yet been circumcised. And because he, he was unconcerned about performing the circumcision in time, an angel was about to kill him. An angel grasped Moses in such a way to make Zipporah understand the danger had been caused by Moses' failure to circumcise the baby. Seeing that her husband was about to die because of his sin of omission, Zipporah circumcised the child, saving Moses' life. She touched the foreskin of Moses' feet in hope that he merit that the merit that he merit the circumcision, that he that, that the merit of that circumcision, like the blood of the Pesach offering on the Jewish doorpost on the night of the Exodus, would save Moses from the angel of death. Zipporah and her son entered the covenant of, that God had made with Abraham. This incident is difficult to interpret. The incident must be connected with the passage from the verse immediately preceding the verse that the Lord sent Moses to deliver Pharaoh, which it says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn, in Exodus 4, 22 through 23. Pharaoh's firstborn son did die because of the blood of the Passover lamb was not applied to his household. After the emergency circumcision, Zipporah disappears from the narrative until she arrives at Sinai in Exodus 18 with her father Jethro and the two sons of Moses. The Torah cryptically says, 
he had sent her away in Exodus 18.2. According to Rashi, Moses sent his family back to live with Jethro for their own safety. You know, it made no sense to me why he would have taken his wife and children to Egypt. His mission was to bring the people out of Egypt, and the mission was bound to be dangerous. Maybe this incident was a way that served an additional purpose of showing Moses' error bringing along his family. Another thing about that incident, it, it was a strange thing to throw in there. Exodus 4, 29-31. The elders and the people of Israel believed Moses and Aaron that Hashem had indeed sent them as his emissaries and that he would redeem them from Egypt. Exodus 5.2, Pharaoh replied, Who is Hashem that I should heed his voice and send out Israel? I do not know Hashem, nor will I send out Israel. After gaining the allegiance of the Hebrew elders, Moses and Aaron went to deliver God's message to Pharaoh. I think I've got a Pharaoh thing here. There we go. This looks familiar. <laughs> Maybe I should do a different pharaoh. <laughs> After gaining the allegiance of the Hebrews, Moses and Aaron went to deliver God's message to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh was not receptive, as God had predicted to Moses. Pharaoh had never heard of the Lord before. Surely he knew the history of Joseph and how his people that Moses was representing came to, came to the land of Egypt in the first place. Pharaoh is a classic case of a hard heart for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the people that Hashem chose to use to reveal himself to the world. He, as all hearted people do, reject the Lord. Pharaoh increased the burden of the people, and the people turned their anger toward Moses and Aaron for the hardships that befell upon them, having to find straw that was now being, not being provided to make the bricks that they were required to make. And this is how our Torah portion ends. The book of Exodus is, um, um, is primary to the, uh, to the faith of being Jewish. The book of Exodus is primary to being messianic to the belief in Messiah because the book of Exodus is the story of redemption and Messiah is the story of redemption the Lord ends this book this, um, this Parsha with this because see Moses is now distraught and he's come to the Lord in prayer he's come to the Lord asking what do I do now because now all I've done is make it worse. And the Lord responded. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let my people go. And under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. Amen. Avinu Makinu, our father, our king. Father, thank you so much for this glorious Shabbat day that you've given us today and this reprieve from the rain for, for a few hours. Thank you for bringing us safely to your house on your day to, get to draw nearer to you, to, to, become, to get closer to you, Father. Be with us as we go through our worship today and be with us as we go out into the world. May those that come in contact us in the world 
see you in us in all that we do. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.